Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You ready? I'm ready. Hello and welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host, my guest host, again, good friend, Matthew. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming to help out again, Matthew. No problem. And you brought me some Subway. I always bring you lunch. Oh my goodness, it was really good. <laughs> it was. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Oh, someone had to do that at some point. <laughs> All right. Come on, it's fun. It is. Americans won't get it at all, but... Some will. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Were they famous down south? Yeah, they were. November of 1902, a rancher named Isaac Belt from Haynes Creek near the city of Red Deer, Alberta, had gone missing. Investigating officers had gone to Belt's ranch to question a young man calling himself Bert Ellsworth. Ellsworth was suspected of horse theft, and he'd been lending a hand at Belt's ranch. That young man and Isaac Belt were both missing. Police later discovered the man claiming to be Ellsworth at a camp on the outskirts of Calgary. He was found in possession of some of Belt's personal belongings and was wearing his clothes. In reality, this man's name was Ernest Cashel. He was a 21-year-old American, and he was on the run from U.S. and Canadian authorities for forgery and other crimes, including escaping from custody several times. Cashel was arrested and charged with theft, and later charged with Isaac Belt's murder, convicted and sentenced to hang. Cashel escaped one last time, only days before he was to be executed, and was on the run for more than a month before being recaptured and sent to see his maker via the hangman. This is Dark Poutine, episode 170, Slippery as an Eel, The Tale of Ernest Cashel. I've recently become obsessed with the HBO show Deadwood, and I'm plowing through episode after episode. So the Wild West has been on my mind. Although I'm probably not going to use the language that peppers the dialogue in that show in this one. There are plenty of colorful characters, many of them outlaws from Canada's early days. We've covered a few, like Albert Johnson, the mad trapper of Rat River in episode 103, the 1902 Altona shooting in episode 86, 
and Swift Runner, the Cannibal, and Possible Wendigo in episode 25. This week's episode is about one of the more slippery eels in Canadian history. Known for escaping custody multiple times, even when being watched and under guard on death row. His name is Ernest Cashel. Ernest Cashel was born in Nebraska in 1882 at the height of the Wild West era in North America. He was the middle of three children. Ernest grew up idolizing and dreaming to emulate the gunslingers and storied outlaws of that era. He listened to stories about bad guys like the James Younger Gang, who committed the first train robbery in the history of the West in July of 1873 by derailing a locomotive of the Rock Island line of West Adair, Iowa and stealing $3,000 from the express safe and passengers on board. Ernest loved learning about famous true life outlaws like Jesse James and his brothers, Billy the Kid, Diamond Dick, and the fictional character Nick Carter was one of his favorites. Cashel endeavored to be just like them all. He loved the Wild West outlaw lifestyle, including guns, heavy drinking, gambling, and crime. A McLean's Magazine article from December 1st, 1930 about Ernest Cashel described him as, quote, a slight figure of medium height, brown hair, with fairly deep-set eyes, and a bad man complex. According to Brian Brennan's book, Scoundrels and Scallywags, Characters from Alberta's Past, quote, Cashel began his criminal career at age 14, when his single mother abandoned her three children and moved north to Pinoca, Alberta, to work as a cook in a lumber camp. Ernest drifted from state to state, trying to create for himself the romance of the outlaw life by gambling, cheating, and stealing. By the time he was 16, he'd spent one year behind bars for larceny, and by the time he was 19, he was making a reputation for himself as an escape artist. Cashel was in jail in Buffalo, Wyoming in 1901, doing a two-year bit for larceny when he escaped for the first time. He was on the run for a full three months before being rearrested in Kansas and jailed there. Before the local lawman could get him back to Wyoming to finish his sentence, he escaped from jail again. This time he landed at his mother's place across the border in Pinoca, Alberta. At the time, Pinoca was just a waypoint for the railway from Edmonton to Calgary. It was, for want of a better phrase, literally the middle of nowhere, but it was an up-and-coming nowhere. From greenerpastures.com, quote, The town of Pinoca is located approximately 100 kilometers south of Edmonton in rolling rich park beltland. The Methodists established a mission to the Stony at nearby Sampson Reserve in the late 1970s. Limited European settlement began in the early 1880s. There was some activity in this area during the Northwest Rebellion when natives looted the Hudson's Bay Company store at the Battle River Crossing. Afterwards, the store was temporarily fortified, Fort Austell, to secure the Edmonton-Calgary Trail. With the construction of the Edmonton-Calgary Railway, later the CP Railway, in 1891, the area grew in popularity as a mixed farming area and Pinoca grew as a service center. Pinoca was incorporated as a village in 1900 and soon after as a town in 1904. Cashel headed to Shepherd, a small farming community just east of fast-growing Calgary. There, Ernest Cashel worked briefly as a ranch hand, 
but his hard work really was not his thing. He moved into Calgary, where he took a run at being a barber. Perhaps he'd cut too many ears off or given really crappy haircuts, but regardless, that didn't work out. At some point, going back to his old ways, he started passing bad checks to bolster his lavish lifestyle of poker and booze. It didn't take long before someone caught him out. Realizing the check he'd been given was a forgery, one Calgary storekeeper notified the Calgary police, identifying Cashel as the forger. Before the local cops could snag him, Cashel was gone. It was much easier to hide in a few ways in those days. There was less technology to track a suspect, but also, as populations in that era tended to be much smaller, particularly in western settlements, people stood out more, and Cashel was one of those. The Calgary Chief of Police, Thomas English, enlisted the help of the Northwest Mounted Police to follow up a lead about someone matching Cashel's description outside the city. Mounties finally caught up to Cashel again near Pinoka, where he'd returned to be near his mom and was again working as a ranch hand. From Brian Brennan's Scoundrels and Scallywags, quote, A Mountie stationed in Red Deer was dispatched to apprehend the fugitive, and Chief English traveled north to assist in the arrest and escort the prisoner back to Calgary by train. Cashel gave up without a struggle. The arresting officers secured him with leg irons and handcuffs. Cashel's cuffs and leg irons were removed so he could eat dinner during a stopover in Red Deer. On returning to the train, while Chief English and Constable Rubbera made chit-chat, mostly ignoring their prisoner still unshackled at this point, Cashel asked to use the washroom. The train was already moving, and the washroom was only a meter or two away, after all. The chief and the Mountie agreed that Cashel could go to the toilet, all on his own, and the forger got up, went into the water closet, and closed the door after him, quietly locking it. From the 1930 McLean's Magazine article on Cashel, quote, With a start, the chief realized that for some seconds he had been listening subconsciously for a sound from that washroom. Uneasiness seized him, and with pseudo-unconcern, he stepped to the door and called. No answer. The door was locked from the inside. A few minutes of lock-forcing opened the door, but no one was surprised to find the room empty and the window open. Anxious heads peered up the track. Cashel had vanished like a gopher. The chief carried his late prisoner's coat and vest back to Calgary as a fleshless substitute. Trains traveled much slower in those days, only around 30 kilometers per hour, so it would have been a relatively easy fall from the moving train onto the gravel near the tracks, or if Cashel had been able to jump far enough when making his escape, he could have simply rolled onto the soft grass of the Alberta Prairie. Chief English was embarrassed and enraged that a prisoner he'd personally been handling had been able to escape so easily. English had never lost a prisoner before and vowed he'd see Cashel behind bars again one day. A week after Cashel's brazen escape from the moving train, he turned up again, this time in Lacombe, a small town north of Red Deer. According to scoundrels and scallywags, Cashel knocked on the door of, quote, a farmhouse near Lacombe, gave his name as Bert Ellsworth, and said he'd been thrown from his horse, which ran off with his coat and gloves. The farmer and his wife put up the soft-spoken stranger for the night and lent him some clothes and a pony, with the understanding that Ellsworth would return them the next day. 
When he hadn't reappeared after a week, the farmer reported the incident to the mounted police. The Mounties determined that the stranger calling himself Ellsworth was none other than their escaped prisoner, Ernest Cashel, and they now sought him as a horse thief as well as his other crimes. Another month passed and Cashel was still on the run. It was November and the weather was getting colder. A harsh prairie winter lay ahead. A Mountie constable named McLeod stationed in Lacombe got wind of a man matching Cashel or Ellsworth description seen near Haynes Creek, 38 miles away. He'd been riding the stolen pony. A man named Thomas, also a settler from the U.S., had met Ellsworth at Isaac Belt's place when Thomas had visited there at the end of October. Isaac Rufus Belt was a hard-working and honest family man, an immigrant from Iowa. He'd made his living as a carpenter and stonemason, but came across the border to Alberta to live out his dream of making his way as a rancher. His wife and six kids were set to follow soon. Isaac settled in Haynes Creek near his sister Adna and his brother Moses also living near Black Falls. He built a small log cabin and there began working the land. McLeod told Thomas that he wanted to go to the Belt Ranch to talk with Isaac, hoping that the rancher might have some idea about, or better yet, that Cashel slash Ellsworth would still be there. But there was a problem. No one had seen or heard from Belts since before Halloween. Thomas and Constable McLeod rode to Isaac Belts and found that no one was home. There was no sign of the man calling himself Bert Ellsworth. A typically locked toolbox lay open and things had been strewn about as though someone had made a quick getaway. Thomas told McLeod that there were other things missing too, from McLean's magazine article. The missing items of note were, quote, a dark cream pony, a new saddle with the name I.R. Belt scratched on the skirt, a repeating shotgun, a new corduroy brown suit, a pair of blankets, overshoes, and a cap were missing. Mr. Thomas remembered that Belt had about $200 in cash with him, including a $50 American gold certificate. Not wanting to jump to conclusions just yet, and having no evidence of foul play, well, there was no blood and a cursory search showed no signs of Isaac's body in the nearby river. The Mounties sent word to Isaac's family back in Iowa, asking if they'd heard from him, and no one had heard a word. Perhaps Belt and Cash were off doing something together, but going silent for so long was not like Isaac Belt. McLeod filed a report about the missing rancher and the other man. Two days into McLeod's investigation, the Mountie discovered some disturbing news. According to a McLean's magazine article, someone matching Cashel's description, quote, had sold the Lacombe rancher's saddle at Pleasant Valley on November 1st. The buyer remembered that Cashel had asked about the main trails to the border. He had been well-armed with a 4440 revolver and a rifle of the same caliber. Isaac Belt had not been riding with Ernest Cashel at the time. The Mounties and his family now became extremely concerned that something had happened to Isaac Belt. Northwest Mounted Police Constable Alexander Pennychuk took charge of the case and yet another manhunt for Ernest Cashel took shape. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. So what are your thoughts on the story so far, Matthew? Uh, you quoted that McLean's article? Yes. I read that as part of the research. 
Yeah. It's so beautifully written, isn't it? Yeah. Like I, the, these turns of phrases like, uh, what, what did he say about um, the coat? Yeah. acted as a fleshless substitute. Yes, for, for the prisoner who'd, <laughs> who'd absconded into the night. It's so well done. Like, I, yeah. you know, I was reading, you know, an online news thing, set, like immediately after I, I read that, and it, it felt like graffiti with punctuation in comparison. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm th I, you know, and you pointed out, I was thinking like how difficult it would be to track somebody down back then. Mm -hmm. You know, no mitochondrial DNA. Yep. You know, there's no... Um, online, there's no credit cards. No tracking a cell phone no with cell towers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, I, and then I was like, yeah, but there's so few people. Right. In 1900, only 5 million people lived in Canada yeah. and 73,000 in Alberta. Wow. So essentially it's, <laughs> they could go door to door, knock, knock, knock. Have you seen somebody that you've never seen before? Yeah. He went that away. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that guy. Yeah. He went over there. Yeah. And the 30 mile per hour train. Okay. Easy to jump off of. Yes. Did you know that un until about this time, they thought if trains went faster than 50, you would either melt or you'd, women's uteruses would fly out. What? <laughs> no, it's true. People, because nobody had gone that fast before and they had these theories of what would happen. <laughs> Like, just like flying uteruses. I don't know where they got that from. That is, that, that's a horrendous thought. Uh, it is a horrendous thought. And, um, but, you know, I'm worried for Isaac Belt. Yeah. Um, hopefully he won't come to a horrible end, but this is a true crime podcast. So that's right. Yeah. He probably will. Reports of casual sightings were coming from all over the Western Canadian provinces and U.S. states. People claim to have seen him as far south as Oregon. If he'd really made it that far, he might be able to escape justice altogether. Over the ensuing weeks, Constable Penichuk sought his prey all the way to Vancouver, then across the border to Seattle, and then Portland. But it turned out the man people had thought to be Cashel was not the fugitive at all. This was one of many wild goose chases that poor Penichuk had to undertake while seeking to get his man. Everyone was on the lookout for the outlaw Ernest Cashel. Many believed he'd killed once, and who was to say he wouldn't do it again to evade capture? Reports of Cashel outside Alberta had to have been exaggerated because according to the scoundrels and scallywags, quote, shortly before Christmas, Cashel arrived by horse and cart at the Sacre Reserve near Calgary. He was now using the alias Nick Carter, a pseudonym used by the authors of dime store crime novels that he had read as a youth. He persuaded two native boys to buy ammunition and clothing for him and then headed west toward the mountains, end quote. Ditching the Ellsworth moniker for that of Nick Carter speaks a lot of how Cashel might have seen himself. The dime store novel hero, a private detective later America's answer to James Bond, first appeared in a dime store novel entitled The Old Detective's Pupil or The Mysterious Crime of Madison Square in 1886. In the early stories, Carter was all-American, youthful, idealistic, and a master of disguise. From Brian Brennan's Scoundrels and Scallywags, quote, When his horse went lame, Cashel stopped at the home of Jumping Pound rancher Glenn Healy and borrowed another, ostensibly to catch his own horse, which he said had strayed. When Cashel failed to return that horse, Healy notified police, end quote. Cops were back on track. They were sure it was him this time. In Kananaskis, 
Ernest stole a diamond ring from a home there, got aboard a train bound for Canmore, and from there he was headed west again. On the morning of January 24, 1903, at a brief stop in Anthracite, a long-gone coal mining town that was situated near Banff, the station agent there, W.L. MacDonald, recognized one of the train's passengers as none other than the 20-year-old fugitive, Ernest Cashel. MacDonald, who had later moved to Vancouver, told the province newspaper in 1929 of his run-in with Ernest Cashel and Cashel's subsequent arrest. Quote, A young fellow walked into the station and handed me a 10-cent rebate check, which I cashed. My first glance, Adam, aroused my suspicions. I knew that Cashel had a scar on the side of his forehead and that this fellow had his cap pulled down on one side of his face. I chatted with him a few minutes and found he was stopping at Black's boarding house, not a stone's throw from the station. I asked Black about his new boarder, and what I found out convinced me that the man was Cashel. We had the man who terrified the country for weeks. People were afraid to open their doors to a stranger. The whole countryside was in panic. I telephoned the Mounties at Banff and found that Constable Blythe was on his way down to our town for a curling game. I told Blythe of my suspicions as soon as he arrived. He arrested Cashel and took him to Calgary. It was that simple. Once again, Cashel didn't put up any resistance when confronted by Constable Blythe. Cashel was found to be in possession of personal items belonging to Isaac Belt, including his brown corduroy pants and his personally inscribed belt and buckle. Cashel also had the diamond ring he'd stolen from the woman in Kananaskis. He was held in charge for theft and possession of stolen property. He was quiet about what had happened to Isaac Belt, denying he'd done anything at all to the man and claiming he had no idea of Isaac's whereabouts. Pennychuk didn't believe Cashel's protestations of innocence, but there was no body, so it was not possible to charge him with Belt's murder. It was not even clear the man was dead at this point. But where was he? As the snows were deep and the weather was harsh, a more thorough search for Belt's body along Cashel's supposed route would have to wait at least until spring. While in jail awaiting trial on the lesser charges, Cashel admitted that for most of his time on the run, he'd not been running at all. He'd been living in Calgary at the home of a man of mixed Indigenous and European heritage. After being convicted on the theft charges on May 14, 1903, Ernest Cashel was sentenced to three years hard labor at Manitoba's notorious penitentiary now called Stony Mountain. From Canada's Penitentiary Museum's newsletter in the summer of 2004, as written by Mark Shaw, quote, The establishment of the Manitoba Penitentiary, as it was known until it was renamed the Stony Mountain Institution in 1972, was authorized by the young Canadian federal government in 1872. Lands were expropriated at Stony Mountain, some 11 miles from Lower Fort Gary. In August 1877, with the Count and Countess of Dufferin presiding, the penitentiary was officially opened. Fourteen inmates, including a female, quote, lunatic, comprised the original prison population transferred from the jail at Lower Fort Gary. The original prison building was soon joined by a number of other buildings as a period of rapid growth commenced. Structures such as stables, schoolhouse, staff quarters, hospital, chapels, forge, and slaughterhouse were built. By 1885, some 44 cells were in use, end quote. As the spring thaw began, Penichuk and the other Mounties went to work searching for Belt's body, if it existed. 
Casher was only two months into his sentence when Isaac Belt's family and the Mounties found out exactly what had happened to the missing rancher. From M.J. Malcolm's book, The Pursuit of Ernest Cashel, quote, On 20 July, 30 miles downstream from Belt's, John Watson was hunting for stray cattle. He stopped at the bank, mopped the sweat from his forehead with a shirt sleeve. The river flowed sluggishly, the water brown with suspended clay. Watson sat slumped in his saddle for several minutes before he realized that the floating log in front of him was not a log at all. It was a man's body, mostly submerged with only the lower back and buttocks clearly visible. John Watson remembered the visit from Constable Penichuk weeks before. There was no doubt in his mind that he'd found Rufus Belt or what was left of him. Watson wheeled his horse and headed for Stinson's, the nearest house. He told his neighbor what he had found and the two men gathered up an axe and a couple of stout stakes and headed back to the river. Once there, Watson waded into the shallow water and gingerly passed a noose over the body. He flung the end of the rope to Stinson, who tied it fast to a stake he had driven into the riverbank. Then Watson headed for Lamerton to report his fine to Constable Vernon. Whatever was to be done with the body would be done by the police. End quote. The body was in a terrible state, having been in the water for some time. The right hand and arm were missing, as were a few teeth. The flesh from the corpse's head and face were decomposed to the point of making the body unidentifiable by its facial features. It was ultimately a badly damaged left foot caused by a childhood accident that had identified the body as that of Isaac Rufus Belt. There was a bullet hole in Isaac's chest. This was determined to be the cause of death. Isaac Belt had been murdered. The slug had broken his clavicle and lodged in his scapula. The coroner dug the bullet out and preserved it. It was a 44 caliber bullet, matching the caliber of the rifle that Ernest Cashel had taken from Belt's ranch had later been spotted with and the same gun that had been with him at the time of his capture. On July 28, 1903, Ernest Cashel was charged with Belt's murder and brought back to Calgary under heavy guard to face trial for causing the rancher's death. The trial was a long one by the standards of the day, taking a full eight days from October 19th to the 27th before the case was handed to the jury. Cashel's lawyer, the famous Patrick James Paddy Nolan, attempted to pick the Crown case apart, trying to explain away even the most damning evidence. Nolan was a colorful character in the history of Canadian justice, and Cashel was his most famous client. From Biography.ca, quote, Not surprisingly, Nolan drew large crowds in court, and he delighted them with his antics, for he was a master of procedure, of people, of language. Judges as well enjoyed his humor. He prided himself on entering court with few, if any, papers, end quote. Nolan's theatrics aside, Many of the spectators in the courtroom felt that the Crown had handily proven its case against the famous outlaw. From the 1930 Maclean's magazine article on Ernest Cashel, quote, Cashel sat with his rather deep-set eyes fixed on the man from whose lips would come the words of deliverance or doom. For the first time, the confidence in his past skill and his ability to imitate his heroes deserted him. Furrows wrinkled his forehead and pallor indicated the difficulty of self-control. Thirty-five minutes in the jury file in. 
The prisoner followed with a quick and steady step. He scanned each member of the jury deliberately, and their faces told him what was coming. He gripped the side of the box with an audible sigh and heard the foreman's, Guilty, sir. Cashel came to his feet as the judge addressed him. Have you anything to say why sentence should not be pronounced against you? Nothing, said Cashel without hesitation, except I ain't guilty. End quote. The date for Ernest Cashel's execution, death by hanging, was set for December 15, 1903 at Calgary. He was held under guard as his lawyer set about making the appeals that could possibly save Cashel from having his neck stretched at the gallows. All appeals were dismissed by the courts, and Cashel's execution date stood. From the story in the Vancouver Province newspaper by H.H.C. Anderson on December 14, 1930, quote, By this time Cashel had earned for himself a reputation as a supercriminal of the most elusive kind, and there were rumors about a concerted effort to release him by a large body of supposed Confederates. Cashel's last days passed without incident until November 14, 1903, when his brother John Cashel arrived from Wyoming. John visited Ernest every day, but was never allowed within five feet of the condemned man and always with bars between them. The group mentioned to have been on their way to Calgary to break Cashel out was none other than the infamous Hole-in-the-Wall Gang. As well as other noted bad guys, the Hole-in-the-Wall Gang included such infamous criminals such as Butch Cassidy's Wild Bunch, which consisted of Butch himself, a.k.a. Robert Leroy Parker, the Sundance Kid, Harry A. Longbaugh, and others. But the gang never materialized in Alberta. Though the story was not yet over, Ernest Cashel had another trick up his sleeve. On December 10, 1903, only five days before he was to be executed, Isaac's brother, John Cashel, came visiting again on death row, just as he had many days before. This time, Reverend Kirby, Cashel's spiritual advisor, was also present, there for the convict's comfort as Cashel's execution date was quickly approaching. John Cashel was in his usual spot at the end of the cell, hands on the bars, but away from his brother, who was inside chatting with the reverend and watched by another of the guards also inside the cell. When the reverend got up to leave, he was let out by the attendant jailer. The other two men on duty were not paying close attention. So, while backs were turned, John Cashel was able to slip a package to Ernest, unseen. From the 1930 Maclean's Magazine article, quote, Outside as night fell, a stormy wind rose. The provost and his two assistants glanced frequently at the clock, hope, hoping for the arrival of their reliefs at 6.40. When it was time to make the daily search of the death cell, the provost and Constable Swiss entered a door in a steel network which shut off the corridor to the cells from the guardroom office, where Constable Spanish remained. Cashel was released from his cell to be watched by Swiss while the provost made his search. Everything was in good order and the provost called to the prisoner to re-enter the cell. Cashel made no movement to obey. The provost looked around impatiently and repeated his order. Cashel still stood there, his hands in his pockets. He was in civilian clothing. With a swift, determined movement, he drew two revolvers from his pockets. You speak or move, either of you, and I'll let you both have it. Cashel ordered the jailers into his cell at gunpoint and locked them inside before escaping using the provost's keys to free him into the blizzard outside. 
Ten minutes later, the night shift guards arrived. Finding their co-workers locked in Cashel's cell and their prisoner gone, they raised the alarm, and the final manhunt for Ernest Cashel began. Immediately, an intensive search was made of Calgary and the surrounding area. It quickly expanded to the rest of southern Alberta, but Cashel was in the wind. This was one of the most embarrassing moments in the history of the mounted police in Canada, and they vowed they'd capture Cashel and bring him to his ultimate justice. Newspapers picked up on the story right away, and the red-faced Mounties were chasing down sightings of Cashel from all over Alberta. A reward had been set at $1,000 for Cashel's capture. Many of the sightings were false, but there was a verified sighting of Cashel in Calgary around Christmas. Apparently, he had not gone far. But as Albertans rang in the new year in 1904, Ernest Cashel, Canada's most famous fugitive at the time, was still on the run. He'd been breaking into homes for food, winter clothing, and shelter in uninhabited structures. The Mounties hunted Cashel for 45 days. In the meantime, John Cashel, Ernest's brother, was convicted of his role in freeing Ernest. On January 24, 1904, Ernest Cashel was found hiding in a cellar of a shack only a few kilometers outside Calgary city limits. Cops surrounded the house, but Cashel was refusing to give up. One officer fired into the basement and Cashel returned fire. No one was hit. Again, Cashel refused to come out, now threatening to shoot himself rather than be taken alive. A shot rang out and officers briefly thought it was done, but there was still movement heard in the cellar. Frustrated, one of the police constables decided to burn Cashel out and set the shack on fire. Choking from the smoke, Cashel gave himself up without resisting any further from the Vancouver province in 1930, quote, In a straw stack near the house was found a burrow furnished with a mattress and a cowhide robe. It was evident that Cashel had lived there for days. One of the men living on the tars was arrested for complicity. On February 2, 1904, moments before being walked to the gallows, Ernest Cashel confessed to the murder of Isaac Rufus Belt. Ernest didn't have another escape in him, and he was hanged that day. It was said that the hangman later sold bits of the rope he'd used to dispatch the famous Ernest Cashel at a Calgary bar for 25 cents a pop. From Scoundrels and Scallywags, Characters from Alberta's Past by Brian Brennan, quote, Sixty years after Cashel's execution, someone found his death note and donated it to the Glenbow Museum Archives in Calgary, addressed as, quote, Advice to Young Men. It warned of the perils of, quote, saloons, gambling houses, and the houses of ill fame and that crime novels were the worst influence of all. Stay home, shun novels, bad company, and cigarettes, it concluded. Don't do anything, boys, you are afraid to let your mother know, end quote. All right, so that's it. For a dark poutine episode one hundred and seventy, slippery as an eel, the tale of Ernest Cashel. <laughs> uh, what do you? What are your thoughts on today's episode, Matthew? You know, when you were reading it, mm -hmm. I was I, I picture it sort of in black and white and a little bit too fast. Like, yeah, like it's yeah. an old. An old movie. Like a hang crank yeah. movie kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Do the music. In the <laughs> <background>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I, I think you have to remember that, you know, because, you know, this is like the Wild West and all that stuff. But, you know, this guy mm -hmm. was a dangerous 
sociopath and murderer, right? Absolutely. And imagine this story in a contemporary context, right? And it kind of put, you'd, you know, it'd be instead of Grand Theft Pony, it would have been Grand Theft Auto and... Um, a game I play, by the forgery, way. Forgery, break and enter, mm-hmm. murder of an innocent farmer. Yeah. It would have been national, if not international news, right? Right. Like, think about those fuckwinks, Brian Schmolensky and Ken McLeod. Schmigelski. Back, <laughs> <laughs> back in, in episode 128, right? Yeah, that's right. Like, it's no different. And we, it, people would have been mortified that this was happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can create these anti-heroes in history, but right. you have to remember that these are real people, yeah. right? And, you know... I'm always interested in the ripple effect in families mm-hmm. when, when something like this happens. Sure, me too. And in history. So I actually tried to f- find the victim's family. So Isaac Belt's family. Yeah. yeah. And it, interesting, his daughter, Ellis, died mm-hmm. in 1963, really close to here in Maple Ridge. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and, and I just wondered, like, what hardships did she have because her father was killed? And yeah. how did that have a knock-on effect? Mm-hmm. You know, what did she tell her grandkids? Yeah, how did she tell that story. Yeah, and yeah. and Myrtle, his other daughter, um lived in Abbotsford, which is close. Yep. And his wife Violet, I'm I'm happy that Violet um married 6 years later. Oh. Yeah, she moved to Blackhawk, Iowa. And here's an interesting tidbit. She is a direct descendant of Edward Doty, who was on the Mayflower oh, when it wow. came to America. So yeah, these are great, you know, it's kind of fun old-timey stories, but you know, that Right. It's amazing to think I've probably walked past one of his descendants here in Vancouver, sure. right? Yeah. Yep. And just how did, how did this affect it and do they know the story? Yeah. Do they even know the story? Maybe, yeah. maybe hearing it now is the first time that they've heard yeah. it. I don't know. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Or you look into it, it's like, wow, I was related to that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. It's time for voicemails. I guess. And voice females. And voice, exactly. And voice non-binary. It's, should we change that to voice peoples? Yes, voice peoples. Vo- voice persons. <laughs> voice persons. Yeah. All good eggs. All good eggs. Uh, you can leave us a voice person at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Uh, let's listen to this one, which came on Tuesday. And it sounds like this person's name might be Deborah. <laughs> I love that uh, that message. Hi, this is Deborah Austin from the U.S., um, right across the border in Michigan. I just wanted to tell you that I really enjoy your podcast. The content is always interesting. Love your co-hosts, whether it's your wife or uh, the funny one I just listened to. I think it's the most recent co-host with the sciatica. Um, I really enjoy your show and I can't wait to hear more of it. You make doing yard work and stuff around my house a lot nicer. Good luck to you. Bye-bye. Wow. wow. Thanks, Deborah. <laughs> I hope I'm the funny one, but I don't have sciatica. It was me who had the sciatica. Oh, okay. But, uh, cause I was talking about my back. Okay. Oh my. But, She's from Michigan. Yes. I could hear a little hint of that Midwestern, do you wanna, Mich- do that you wanna, Michigan accent. Do you want to know a secret? Sure. My grandmother was American. She's from Cadillac, Michigan. Cadillac. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Cadillac, Michigan. Yeah. Is it named, is the car named for the the place or is the place named for the car? 
the the car's name from the play. Oh, that's kind of cool then. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Here's one from a somebody who lives in Scarborough, Ontario. Scarberia. Scarberia. Hi, Mike and co-host. I'm Katrina. I'm calling from Scarborough um, in Ontario, which you may know because Drake pretends to be from here sometimes. Um, I have a case suggestion. So a few years ago, I was coming back from work and I meant to go for my run. And my dad said, you cannot go for a run. Um, there are cop cars and that section of the neighborhood. And it turns out uh, one of my neighbors had killed his mother with a crossbow. And there's something weirdly unforgettable about someone killing someone with a crossbow. And that, you guys should cover it. I'm really intrigued about it, and I've never learned more, even though it's literally a block from my house, and I used to run past that house all the time. Um, your show is great. Uh, the new co-hosts are great. And uh, keep doing what you're doing, and um, go take a shit in your ass. <laughs> all right, <laughs> Bye. Some people have real trouble telling us to go shit in our hats <laughs> because it's it's kind of rude. Yes. But we know you don't mean it rudely. So if you tell us to go shit in our hat, if you say it, it's better than telling us to go something else I, ourselves. I think she said it with love. I think she did. Yeah. I, I think she did. Um, interesting. I had not heard of the case in Scarborough where somebody was. Yikes. Yeah, killed. I've heard about this. You've heard about it? Yeah, because it just stands out like a crossbow mm. killing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really that weird. It might be an interesting one to check out. Yeah, I'll have to look into it further. Sometimes uh, these interesting cases don't have a lot of information on them. So if there is one, maybe there will be a show. Yeah. We will see. All right, here is another one, and this looks like someone calling from Ladysmith, British Columbia. I was called Lady Fingers by accident. Lady Fingers. Hi, my name is Cindy, and I'm calling from Ladysmith on Vancouver Island. I just want to say that I love your podcast. I'm um, really interested in true crime, but my favorite episodes are the history ones, like the Halifax explosion. Actually, that was my favorite. Um, I've put off leaving a voicemail for literally months, but I finally got motivated to do it when I heard you say, that your Patreon contributions had dropped off, which is really understandable because the pandemic has really messed up things for a lot of people. But I decided that if I pay for Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, that the podcast is just another thing that I enjoy. So why shouldn't I contribute to that? Also, I want to say I'm a big fan of Matthew. He has a really nice radio voice. I'm not sure really what that implies, but it's meant to be a compliment. Uh, anyways, um, I would say that that hat thing, but I just can't do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. So have a nice day and bye for now. See you in the yard. That's great. Well, thanks, Cindy. Thank you, Cindy. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, so another person who, you know what, it's telling us to have a nice day is is fine. You can do that as well. That's the way we take go shit in your hat too, yeah. just so you're aware. Uh, but if if that is too crass a phrase for you, too crass a turn of phrase, perhaps it's best to stick with have a nice day. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And thanks for the compliment on my voice. I have a face for radio. You, 
You definitely have a face for radio, as do I. That's why you don't see me in front of the camera. I am behind the scenes. Behind the mic. Yes, uh, the mic. Mic behind the mic. I am the mic behind the mic. And that's it for voicemails this week. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. P T N. Uh, it and that would mean that it is time for Patreon. Yay! And uh, as um, as Cindy mentioned, mm-hmm. Patreon had dropped off. Now I don't know if the two things are related. I think they might be, but I made a bit of an announcement on Facebook the other day about what had happened to require me to remove my former co-host from the mm-hmm. show. And ever since then, people have been really stepping up as far as Patreon goes. The love and support that people have given me has really, um, I'm trying not to get upset and get, get emotional Don't. here. I'm here for you. Oh. Patting I, you on the back. I appreciate that. But um, people have really stepped up as far as support and uh it's been hard because there's been some uh people who aren't happy with with that stuff and uh interestingly um that person is more concerned with being seen in a certain light and the label of a monster or saying that his behavior is predatory than he is in actually addressing what went on so take that for what it's worth this has not been easy so it doing this Patreon stuff this week has really moved me. So our first patron is from Soldo Sold oh boy Soldotna, Alaska. Jennifer Pelka. Hello, Jennifer Pelka. And what does Jennifer do there in Alaska? She's a nomenclator. A nomen so she names things. No, so she whispers in the ear of a host the names of people as they approach. So at a political rally or at high society party. And she just says their name and a little bit about them so that the, the host looks like they're in the know and that they're personable. Unlike myself, just mispronouncing uh, I know. I Soldotna, think... Alaska. I could have used Jennifer here. I know. I'm sure you've butchered that. I, I totally have. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Thank Jennifer. you, Jennifer. Uh, another eager beaver. Um, next up, from... Geneva, Illinois, we have Mary Ammon. Mary Ammon. Hello, Mary. Mary Ammon. Do you want to know what Mary does? I do. What does Mary do there in Geneva, Illinois? Do you have your, do you have your seatbelt done up? My seatbelt is typically done up when I go for a drive. I am not wearing one currently. She's a psychedelic astronomical theorist. Oh boy. So her main theory is that there is increasing evidence that co- the cosmic neighborhood that we're in yep. is fairly unstable. She thinks that biology is somehow prescient mm-hmm. and that biology exists somehow in eternity and knows the fate of the planet and that we as humans are the planet's desperate strategy to escape um, uh, from itself, if you will. Oh, So essentially her belief is that as a species bipedal monkey with bifocal vision. Um, we've been led into the antechamber of nature's secrets in order to build machinery and unleash energy sufficient enough to deflect an asteroid and flee, or flee the planet itself. So, so life will go on. My head is about to explode. Yeah, is that And I, I, I am thinking thoughts that I haven't <laughs> thought since I've, I've done LSD, so. Well, there you go. And so, yeah. you know, she's, she's well-respected. Yeah. <laughs> 
I guess so. <laughs> well, thank you, Mary. I've never heard of Mary Ammon's uh, psychedelic <laughs> prescience before, but uh, it's rather interesting. There you go. Next up, we have Killian Zimmerman. And I don't know where Killian is from. Killian Zimmerman? Yes. Is from Emergency. She lives. Is Killian a woman? Just say they. Okay. Uh, they live in an emergency government headquarter number four. Oh, what? Uh, uh, also known as a Defen Bunker. Oh, a Defen Bunker. Yeah. I actually am planning a show on Defen Bunkers. At they're some fascinating. Time. So there's seven that were built by Prime Minister John Defen Baker. Yes. In 1959 to house key members of parliament, et cetera. Yes. And they're, they're built to a stand at, at, uh, near direct five megaton blast. So she lives there. I don't know which province because I was sworn to secrecy, secrecy but she lives in a Defen Bunker. A Defen Bunker. And what does she do whilst either in the Defen Bunker or... Uh, on foray outside from said bunker. Well, there's there's an old school bowling alley nearby, mm -hmm. and she's a pin setter. Wow, I thought they were uh, automated now. Most of they them. are, but some people like it, like old school. So she she stands at the end and resets the pins. Well, good for her. Yeah, and throws the ball back. Okay, I I hope Killian is a she, but uh, we've so, we've said they sorry. and she. And well, sorry, yeah. We've gendered somebody and we didn't mean to. <laughs> well, thank you, Killian, regardless. Um, and uh, enjoy setting those pins whilst outside your Defen bunker. <laughs> These are much more fun jobs than we've, we've typically had, Matthew, just so you're aware. Well, I put a lot of work into this. I know you do. Next up, we have Cindy LaFleur. And I don't know where Cindy's from, but I'm hoping it's Montreal because, and she's the daughter of Guy LaFleur, but... Uh, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. But where is Cindy from? Montreal. Oh, I guessed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. And and what does Cindy do? She hand trims cannabis buds. Hand trimming cannabis buds. Yes. That's, well, there you go. That's a, that's a real job. I know it is. It's a very difficult job. Mm -hmm. I've employed people to do it. Um, takes a lot of practice, but you know, each, each flower has its own sort of unique shape and she gets the best out of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, and that's why her last name is LaFleur because oh. she's. LaFleur, yeah, LaFleur. Yeah. 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 There was a rumor that Guy LaFleur smoked like 10 packs of cigarettes a day and that he would smoke in the penalty box. <laughs> <laughs> what, what year was he playing? In the seventies. Well, it's probably true. Yeah. Every, was, everyone one, everyone one smoked all the player. time back then. Yeah, yeah everybody smoked. <laughs> Even doctors. I can remember people smoking in my hospital room when I was four. You've seen the old ads. It's good for the throat. <laughs> good for the throat. Ha, have a lucky strike. It's good for the throat. <laughs> Next up, we have another patron named China Cat. I'm not sure if it's a cat from China or where China Cat is from, but... All I have here is China Cat. China Cat. Did you know that just outside of Stratford, Ontario? Okay. Is where, where you're from, actually. Well, I'm from near there. It's just, I'm from Strathroy. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Strathroy. Yes. Sorry. I know. So You say I'm from New Brunswick, so. <laughs> well, you're east somewhere. So right. just, just outside, sorry, everyone on the east coast. I've yeah, just I alienated know. everybody. Mm. 
outside of Stratford, which has the Shakespearean festival, right? Yep. Uh, is a hamlet called Shakespeare. A hamlet. Called Shakespeare. Oh, wow. That's where she's from. That's very meta. I know. And what does China Cat do in the hamlet called Shakespeare? <laughs> she is a telegram messenger. There's still the such a thing? Yeah, you know, some people just like the old school way. So she she gets the telegrams, jumps on her bike and delivers. Drunk off my ass. Stop. Send cash. Stop. It's sort of like, you know, a lot of people have gone back to sort of vinyl records. Yes. Well, people are going back to telegrams. Oh, it's like a hipster thing. And she's riding that wave. There you go. Got to do what you got to do. Yeah. And she has a gearless bike. She's like total hipster. Oh, there you have it. Next we have... Jenny Marie, and she is from Williamson, MI is Michigan, I believe. Maybe. Yeah. So let's just go with that. <laughs> um, Jenny Marie. Now, what does Jenny Marie do there in Williamston? She's an archaeologist. An archaeologist? Yes. Archaeologist is a part, portmanteau of architecture and ecology. Yes. It's a field of creating architectural design principles for very densely populated um, areas that is also ecologically low impact. So to think of, you know, those, like if you watch like a future movie and there's like a big building and it has everything, it's like self-contained. Yes. That's an arcology. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you for trying to take care of the planet a little bit with that, like low impact on carbon footprint and all that kind of stuff. Neat. Thank you, Jenny Marie. Next up, we have Errol Lobo. And Errol is from Arlington, Texas. Excellent. Excellent. What does Errol Lobo do there in Texas? Errol is a bone grubber. What's a bone grubber? So otherwise known as rag and bone person or a bone picker or a rag gatherer or a bag board or a totter. I know none of these things. I am lost. So my husband yes. actually remembers... Um, or the rag and bone man okay. com coming down the street where they'd yell in London in the early 70s or 80s, um, yell, uh, any old iron rag and bone? So they just go up and down the street and any items that you didn't want wow. that they would sell on. Okay. And actually more recent years because scrap metal prices have gone up. Yeah. This is true actually. They've started coming around again. Oh, neat. But instead of on a horse and carriage, it's in a in van a and yeah. they have a loudspeaker and people complain because, you know, they're yelling on a megaphone, right? <laughs> Give me stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sell me stuff cheap so I can go sell it for more. Well, thank you, Errol Lobo, for being the recycling god that you apparently are there in Arlington, Texas. Next, we have Kimberly Boyd. And I don't know where Kimberly is from, Matthew. You don't work. Kimberly is from Cowbridge in Wales. Oh, wow. It's not far from Diffrin. Mm -hmm. And just Sir Anthony Hopkins went to school there. Yes. Just so you know. Oh, neat. Yep. Sir Anthony Hopkins. Yes. And I ate his liver with in some over the candy and some <laughs> fava beans. <laughs> That's where she's from. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm. Well, very nice. And what does she do there? What does Kimberly do there in Wales? She is actually uh, the president of the Sir Anthony Hopkins um, fan group. Well, there you go. Yeah. But he just won another Oscar. 
Did he? Yes, he did. For, for what? For the father. Um, he played oh. a, an, a man who is uh, suffering from dementia. As, oh, that'd be sad. As he goes on in years, yeah. And uh, he wasn't able to come to the Oscars because he's in his 80s. Right. And, and he didn't want to obviously fly from his home in Wales to... Yeah, I don't know if he lives there anymore. He yeah, I think he there. does. I think okay. he still does. But uh, he's a great, very spiritual guy, sober a long time. So interesting hmm. cat, Anthony Hopkins. Cool. Yeah. So there you go. Well, thank you, Kimberly, for taking care of such a, a great actor's legacy. Absolutely. Yeah. Next we have Michelle Rachel. And Michelle is from Victoria, British Columbia. Well, thank you, Michelle. Now, what does Michelle do there in Victoria? Michelle works for the fairies. Oh, no. Yes. So not super busy lately because less people take in the fairies, but... Right, so she's an official apologist for the fairies. Oh, so she apologizes for yeah, things. That's a big job. <laughs> well, sometimes your sunshine breakfast isn't cooked quite right. No, and sometimes the fairy doesn't show up. Right, that's true too. Well, there you go. Hopefully she doesn't actually work for BC Fairies, but... Well, sometimes we've been bang on with jobs accidentally. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, BC Fairies, people, you can complain, but it's a good way to get around. It is. It really is. I, I like taking a fairy. So does Steve. Again. So Steve loves the fairies. <laughs> Matthew's dog loves to go on the little ferry around Vancouver. Obsessed. He's obsessed. He literally, as soon as I walk at the door, if I let him lead, he, he walks to the end of the pier every time. I wonder what it is that he likes about the boat. Is it the movement of the it's boat? It's the or? movement and he likes to stick his nose out and smell the water. I think he's looking for seals and stuff like that. Well, there you go. Because he can see them occasionally. I really want to come and see you and Steve again. Do I, it. I miss you guys. Well, thank you so much. Uh, How many more are there? Oh my God, there's quite a few. Shit, because I, I didn't realize there'd be so many I need to think of. Well, we can, what we can do is split it up. We can do some next week. Okay. Um, do you give me the one that needs a place? One that needs a place? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have, we'll do two more. One that doesn't have a place and one that does. Okay. Next up from Ann Arbor, Michigan, we have Margaret McKinley. Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor, yeah. That's not far from Cadillac. A lot of Michigan today. A lot of Michigan. Yeah, I've been to Ann Arbor. Yeah. Um, and what does Margaret McKinley do there in Ann Arbor, Matthew? M Margaret is a Bematist. So I'm going old school with a lot of things today. Yeah. Right? So Bematists were schooled in Greece originally. Mm -hmm. And when the Roman legions and stuff were going out, they would count their steps yeah. to create maps and distances. Oh, wow. So she, you know, we have Google Earth and everything. Yep. She says, this is another hipster job. No, yep. she goes out walking and she counts the steps and writes them down to create old school maps. That's really cool. Yep. Well, thanks, Margaret. That's a neat job. It's a cool job. And we have somebody else whose last name is Zimmerman, uh, which is interesting, but this time it's Stephanie Zimmerman. So... You can be, you can rest assured that maybe Stephanie is maybe, a she. And maybe they're related. It could be. It very much could be. Um, and I don't know where Stephanie Zimmerman is from. She's from the People's Republic of Snackistan. <laughs> oh, 
That sounds like a place that I would love to reside. Yeah, it is run by a king called Aloysius. Aloysius, the king of Snackistan. Yeah, um, and Aloysius loves you uh, too, the band. Oh, and well, every, he's lost me at that. Every three hours and 15 minutes, um, one of their songs is played over a loudspeaker and everyone has to stop and snack, right? Okay. And they're famous for their banoffee pie because they're snack specialists. And what is this? The People's Republic of Snackistan. No, but what's the pie? Banoffee pie. See, I don't know this. What's a banoffee? Bananas and toffee. Oh my goodness gracious. There's somebody on our Facebook group that I nicknamed banoffee pie. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. I want to eat a banoffee pie. And now. there's also an Aloysius <laughs> who's from Snackistan. Well, there you have it. Yeah. And so she, um, she is the official, she's creates banoffee pies, all kinds of different versions of it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, there you go. And that's it for this week's patrons. Uh, there have been more, actually another like 15. We're going to get to you next week. Yes, we'll get to you next week. Uh, we had to break it up because this would be a very long <laughs> show, which, you know what? I am super, super grateful for, again, for how much people have stepped up after my announcement on Facebook. Yeah, we'll we'll just move on and yeah. <laughs> we'll go into... Uh, but we'll get you, stay tuned next week. We're going to call you out. Yes, next week. Yeah. And um, we do actually have some donut money donors, which is interesting. Can I, can I do a shout out? Yes. Are we, are we recording? Yes. Can I shout out to my aunt Sharon? You can shout out to your aunt Sharon. <laughs> my aunt Sharon who wrote to me saying, I'm listening to this show called Dark Poutine and there's somebody named Matt that sounds just like you. She didn't know I was on the show. No. So this is a shout out to my aunt Sharon. She's one of the good eggs out there in the world. There you go. And um, a little prod to send us some donut money, Aunt Sharon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just shilling to Aunt Sharon. <laughs> um, so as far as donut money goes, we had a few of those this week too. Um, from Terry Bell, and we don't know where Terry's from. Hopefully you might have a place sort of in your brain. Uh, Terry says, not much, but hopefully enough to get your donut fix for the weekend or maybe... Uh, some, something to, well, something to put on the barbecue. Okay. Well, there you go. Terry Bell is from Sarnia. Sarnia, Ontario. Sarnia, Ontario, mm -hmm. yeah. just over the river from Michigan. There you go. And, and what does Terry do there in Sarnia? Terry works the toll booth into and out of America and therefore has fallen on hard times because nobody's allowed over right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, things will be getting back to normal soon, Terry. Yeah. I think there's a toll booth in Sarnia. Well, I hope there is. <laughs> if not, you've just said there was, but whatever. <laughs> um, so another one, Shelby Groves, and she says um, a lot of stuff that mentions my Facebook post about mm. what happened with my former co-host and uh, says, uh, thank you, to whoever your co-host is this week, I'm sending you oh so much love and hugs and donuts. Thank you so much, Shelby. And what does Shelby do and where does she live? Where is, she, where is Shelby from? That's a question, right? Yeah. Spread Eagle, Newfoundland. Oh boy. <laughs> it's a bedroom community of dildo. Uh, um. It's just like right under dildo head. Oh, and I, sits, I'm very disturbed. And sits on top of South Dildo. No, actually look on a map. I'm I, not, I'm I not kidding. I don't doubt you. Yeah, DP seems to stand for something other than dark, dark poutine. Okay. <laughs> and she's a fisherwoman. Well, there you go. Yeah. 
It, we all need those, and and we know that fisher people have fallen on hard times back east. Yee. But uh, keep keep on trucking, and thank you for the donut money. Next up um, is Kate Rosso, and she says we're doing a great job, and this seemed like the best way to tell us love from Maine. So thank you so much, Kate. What does Kate do there in Maine? What does Kate do there in Maine, Matthew? I have, I think she's a fisherwoman there as well. I, yep, probably lobster. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, that's where, that's where my hero is from. Stephen King? Jessica Fletcher. Oh, Jessica Fletcher is from... Cabot Cove, Maine. But she doesn't have a Maine accent. No, but the character is from Cabot Cove, Maine. Well, she should be talking like this here. <laughs> that, well, that's what that's what the that's what the chief of police sounds. No, that's what the doctor sounds like in the show. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, like uh, my name is Eddie Driscoll, and I'm going to hear from WLBZ in Bangor, <laughs> Maine. Send us your announcements, and we'll put it did on you get, for you. Did you get Maine radio stations where you grew up? TV stations and radio. Yeah. Yep. You know what I got growing up. I grew up just like an hour from Detroit. Michigan, yeah. Picture this, 1970s yep. Motown. Oh, wow. Right, because from Detroit, it was the best. Wow. Yeah. Next up, we have Carrie Ann, oh God, Hollerud Collado, or Collado. Thank you for your storytelling and uh, appreciate your present. Uh, respect, ever-present respect for victims. Also enjoy the Dark History episodes from Minnesota. You in the up north have some donuts, maybe a coffee, and then a good shit in your hat. You deserve oh, it. lovely. Thank you, Carrie Ann. Um, I've never been to Minnesota. I haven't either. I'd I, like to. I've driven past. I think, there, is there a city called St. Cloud in Minnesota? I think there is. She's yep. she's a cl- official cloud watcher in St. Cloud. Well, there you go. Somebody's got to do it. I would think, yeah, a friend from St. Cloud originally. I want to go to St. Cloud. So it sounds like a really beautiful place. I want to drive across again. And yeah. I the last time I drove, I when I was going east, I dipped through the states from Washington all the way to Ontario. Right. And it was a nice drive. And the reason I did it is because the speed limits are higher. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in Montana, there was there are places where there is no. Make sure your uterus doesn't fly out, Mike. I was going faster than thirty <laughs> kilometers an hour, thirty miles an hour, and uh, my uterus did not fly. Can out. you believe that shit? I can't believe that actually. It's I think tr- that's crazy. It's true though, and of course, of course, in a historical context, it's like the big problem with the women, right? It's so ridiculous. Yeah. Their uteruses won't fly yeah. out. Yeah, women have been getting the. Oh, I, I was going to say get in the shaft. For, <laughs> Fuck. But that's terrible. You should edit I, that out. I should probably edit that out, yeah. but I won't. Okay. Because, yeah. Everyone has a sense Everybody of knows that I didn't mean yeah. anything by that. Next up, we have Aria McCall. And McCall is not spelled like my grandmother McCall, but anyway, Aria McCall. And she says, treat yourself and Matt to some Canadian yeah. maples. Yay. Yeah. So there you go. Um. And where is Aria from? Aria. Era. Oh, maybe it looks like it, I'm pr- mispronouncing it. It's Era. It's Era. You era ma- McCall. You, yeah. ma- you made an Era. I made <laughs> I made a big Era. <laughs> oh, I can even do that in a Bangor accent. <laughs> I made an Era in pronouncing your name, Era. Is she, is she from down south? 
I don't know. That's a great question. That's for you to answer, isn't it? Oh, well, I thought she said she, she said up. Did she say up? Treat yourself and Matt to some oh. Canadian maples. So well, I don't know. Canadian maples. Hmm. I think she's from Nebraska. Nebraska? Yeah. The corn husker state. Yeah. Well, there you go. And uh, what does she do? Husk corn. Of course she does. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Era McCall. And thank you all so much for your uh, stepping up and and helping out. And it's called love and support. Love and support. Um, yeah. And the reason the reasons that I, I I did this at this time, the reason that I felt it necessary to speak up, was because there has been a lot of pressure for me to do so. And I thought for a while, why are these people pressuring me to talk about this? And it was coming from all kinds of different places. Like people would email me and people would uh, message me about it. And um, I realized the, the only thing that I'm doing is keeping a secret for somebody mm. that I shouldn't be keeping a secret for. So I'm not keeping that secret anymore. And if you're curious about what we're talking about, go to Facebook and look up Dark Poutine because I'm not going to talk about it any further. No, I think um, hopefully this you can draw a line under this. Yeah, I want to put a pin in it. Yeah. Enough of this crap. So thank you all to our patrons and donut money donors, past and present for your generosity. This week it has been definitely noticed. It helps keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutines on iTunes Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye, everybody. Good night and goodbye. Good night and goodbye. showcase they call me the christchurch carver based on the international bestseller this trademark souvenir can't stop thinking about the apple usually he eats it i've got a copycat on my hands i know who you are joe i know what you do you have two days to find a copycat this is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it dark city the cleaner all new wednesdays on showcase stream on stack tv